Hey, what's up, everybody? Hope you're having a great day. Thanks for tuning in to the Coach Podcast. I'm here today with Eric Boris. And again, on the bonus episode, we've got Dr. David Yee with us. What's up, man? What is going on? Now, sorry, I just cut Jared off. No, no, no. Because no. I have to know. Uh, this has been bothering me as I consider uh, what you do for fun. Um, the very first time you were on, we talked about you do like Ironman triathlon kind of stuff, mm-hmm. which I have incredible respect for and no desire to do myself. <laughs> uh, you just a couple weeks ago-ish completed the like 200-mile uh, one-mission bike ride thing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Man, that's a long way to ride a bike. It is. Yeah. What I have to know uh, here on the podcast for everybody, <laughs> because I have heard this might be one of those things you learn on the playground, but I have it on semi good authority that marathon runners will at times uh, soil themselves during a race. Yes, they will. Okay, mm-hmm. sounds great. Also, a reason why I don't do that. <laughs> I have to know if it is the same thing for long distance bike riders. Uh, it, it can be. It definitely can be. Right. Okay. Um, uh, because sometimes you're out there in the middle of nowhere and there's no place to go and you've mm-hmm. been living on nothing but like energy gels. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and you might have like six or seven of those suckers in your system and sometimes your body just doesn't agree with those things. Um, uh, but if you really want to get all up in like the awkwardness of being a cyclist, yes. it's not about the diarrhea. Okay. It's about the chafing. Right? <laughs> <laughs> if you start talking about chafing, Every cyclist will have stories about like what saddle works best for them and what um, butt cream is most appropriate to help you with it. Right? Wow! Yeah. So you're t- so just so I'm picturing this correctly, yeah. not that I want to picture it. You're telling me that a, a whole like fleet of these bike riders could be just pulled off to the side of the road, applying butt cream. <laughs> <laughs> to deal with their massive chafing issues. Yes, yes. There's actually, if in our in our um, gear bags that Bike Fight Poverty gave us this weekend, you would actually find a purple and yellow tube uh, donated by a bike shop called Shammy Butter. Right, Shammy Butter. Now, Shammy is the name of the sewn-in diaper that is built into every pair of bike shorts. Right, it's like a little diaper that's sewn into the bottom of the bike shorts to give you extra padding. Right? Oh, okay. I was right. going to ask it's for what padding. it was for. It's okay. not for pooping. It's for padding. Okay. Um, uh, and chamois butter, B-U-T-T, apostrophe R, butter. <laughs> Naturally. Right? Um, is, uh, well, you know what it's for. <laughs> Just helps things glide <laughs> it a little better. helps like, stay smooth. Like, mm. you want... I could just sense the unsubscribe <laughs> button being, being clicked, clicked right, right now. now. Yes, I yes, must yes. have downloaded the wrong podcast. This is not what I. Well, you, you want to talk about diarrhea? I mean, I, is that is it, is this really worse than that? I, this is youth ministry. This is, yeah, <laughs> if, if you're not comfortable talking about diarrhea or butt butter or whatever it was called, <laughs> I don't know that you can be a coach long term. Yes, yes, yes. yes. So, That's awesome. I have never pooped myself riding a bike. That for is, the record. That right? is a very good disclaimer. To put I've also in there. never pooped myself um, uh, during a marathon either. Man, yeah. what so, about a long distance swim? I've never pooped myself during a long <laughs> okay. distance. But just, if you did, no just, one would know. Uh, just, you know what just, I mean, if there was going to be a time to do it, yeah, that would be the I'm, time. Right? I'm pretty sure the guy behind you in the pool would know. <laughs> This is a terrible conversation. This is this, this is my this might be my favorite conversation we've ever had on the podcast. And I will talk about this for the next 30 minutes unless Jared writes the ship right now. 
Well, I think just on the noble side of things, that's awesome. That uh, how many years have you ridden the one mission uh, bikes or bikes fight? Uh, this is my fifth year. So yeah. fifth year wow. bikes fight poverty. Yeah, and you raised a quarter of a million dollars. Yeah, the team um, Bikes Fight Poverty raised a quarter of a million dollars this year. So that's the biggest year that they've ever had uh, by far. You know, wow. I nearly double our previous record, I think, somewhere in that ballpark. So uh, $250,000 in, in one year, all for all for putting uh, deserving families in stable housing, you know, trying to build up the communities that are uh, supported by One Mission. I know that One Mission is an organization that a lot of people are familiar with. Um Something that I just got back this weekend from the build trip that was associated with that ride. So raise the money, go down, help build some houses. Super good time. That's awesome. And you're a foreman mm -hmm. on those houses. So you're like telling everybody how to build them. Yeah. You're a doctor. Mm -hmm. You are a foreman, a bike rider, an Keep Iron going. Man. What can't you do? A true Renaissance man. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, be humble. I can't, I can't do that part right now. Well, uh, let's let's get on to the subject matter uh, today. We we wanted to circle back to just the topic of mental health, since we do have a psychiatrist with us. Psychologist. Psychologist. Oh, come Sorry. on. That's so offensive. You can't well, it's not offensive. I, just I asked a man about diarrhea. You got his title wrong. Dang it. <laughs> Dang it. Um, you know, mental health has been such a big topic around CCV the last year, and the Press On campaign is pretty incredible. And one of the things that we wanted to just circle back to, again, in anticipation for what we are going to experience this summer, with our students at camp, we just really anticipate some tough conversations as our students um, unpack what they've been going through. And I think, excuse me, mental health will continue to come up. So one of the questions we wanted to dive into today is just talking about the difference between depression, grief, and sadness. Sure, yeah. And I, I'm thankful that we're having this conversation, like, like genuinely, like I feel like... Like people are starting to get more comfortable talking about therapy. Um, people are definitely starting to get more comfortable to talk about subjects like um, like anxiety. Uh, that's I don't know how many times we've talked about anxiety either on this podcast or in sermons or in lessons and those things. But the word that you don't hear spoken uh, very much is depression. Uh, one because it's just not that fun to talk about. Um, but two, because there's still a lot of shame and there's still a lot of embarrassment that comes from admitting that you're depressed or from, um, it's still something that people kind of talk about with like hushed tones sometimes. So if, if I have a chance to have a, have a platform to kind of talk more openly and more honestly about what depression is and how it affects us, how it affects teens, um, I, I'm thankful for that opportunity. But as far as like, so you asked the question, what's the difference between sadness, grief, and depression, right? Um, and if I had to, if I had to try to, you know, sadness is an emotion, right? Um, sadness is an uncomfortable emotion, but it's a necessary, normal, and important emotion, right? Um, sadness is something that tells us that we've we've lost something that means something to us, or that um, that we feel like we're about to lose something, you know. Um, and and emotions need to be felt, you know. Uh, when you lose something, you're supposed to feel sad, or what, whether you've lost a relationship, or you lost a person, or whatever. Um, or maybe you've just lost a hope or a dream of something that the way that you thought things were supposed to be. Um, so you, you've lost something important to you. And then the emotion that I feel is sad, right? Everybody feels sad, right? Some of our biggest mental health problems come when we refuse to feel sad, 
right? Mm -hmm. Uh, When we deny ourselves the ability to feel sad, when we try to cover it up with some sort of coping mechanism or some sort of escapist kind of thing or some sort of denial kind of thing that we're doing to try to pretend like it's not there, but we refuse to feel sad, um, the sadness doesn't go away. Like, And then we're responsible for keeping up whatever coping thing that we've been doing to try to keep that sadness from ever coming up. So, so giving yourself permission to feel sad is, is, is an important thing. But so, so sadness is just an emotional reaction to something, right? Um, grief is, is when you take that sadness and you go down to a deeper level, right? Because now I haven't just lost something um, that was transient. I've lost something that was integral to, to how I see my life, you know? Um, so the, the death of a loved one is the most obvious example of a time when, when a person experiences grief because this is a relationship that was integral to my life. You know, this is part of my family. This is part of my safety. Um, this is part of my world. And now I've just lost something that, that I'm going to miss, you know? And so grief is not only the sadness that comes from that loss, but it's, it's the adjustment to a new life without that thing that used to be a consistent part of it, right? Um, and sometimes that can take a long time, you know, um, uh, you can grieve all kinds of stuff, you know, um, uh, in adults, we sometimes will grieve the loss of a job, you know, um, sometimes it'll be like grieving the loss of a pet, you know, uh, in our family, we, we had a dog pass away last year, um, Dozer, um, it was really hard, you know, it was really hard for our family to go through just because he was, um, he was a consistent part of our life for 12 years, you know, and the way that grief shows up is, all of those moments where he would normally be present, right? Now he is no longer present. And that reminds me of the sadness. That's grief kind of in a nutshell is, is this adjustment to something that used to be there. Now it's not there anymore. Mm-hmm. Depression um, is, is kind of a different animal, not altogether. It's not unrelated to those other things, but it shouldn't be lumped in as the same thing, right? And a lot of times people will talk about depression as just, sadness that goes on too long or sadness that's very deep, which it, that's an okay starting point. But a lot of times when a person is talking to you about depression, it's not that they feel sadness all the time. Most likely what they're experiencing is an absence of feelings, like something like an emptiness or a hollowness or a hopelessness or a despair, um, something much more like soul violating than just plain sadness. You know, um, As a matter of fact, for a lot of people who are depressed, to feel sad would be a step forward um, because what they normally experience is not much at all, you know. Um, uh, depression uh, can take on a very clinical level, you know, where um, I don't have the energy uh, to get out of bed. I don't have the will or the motivation to engage in my daily life, you know. Um, it can affect sleep. It can affect appetite. Um, sometimes it needs to be treated medically, um, very often it needs to be treated medically. It can't just be something that you just tough your way through, you know. Um, so so the, there are different, there is a big difference between these things. They can't, and they can't all be treated in the same exact way. Yeah. How can, uh, for a coach dealing with a, a teenager, um, it's a, a group of people prone to uh, emotional swings mm-hmm. at times. Mm-hmm. Um, and at, t- at times just moodiness, mm-hmm. like, you know, I remember being a teenager listening to angry or sad music and just pouting in my room for reasons I can't remember at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, how does a coach navigate with a student? Okay, is this kind of run of the mill? This guy's sad today versus this person has something going on. Well, yeah, yeah, that's 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 a really good question um, because because teenagers are 
um, typically more emotionally volatile than than fully developed adults. <laughs> One of those is because they haven't developed all those maladaptive coping strategies to hide all their emotions yet. Um, <laughs> so they come up to the surface, um, uh, and or, or or if we're putting a more positive way, they haven't developed the, the healthy expression skills and the healthy coping skills to try to deal with those emotions when they come up. So so teenagers can sometimes be more raw, right? Um, uh, and so how do I figure out what's normal teenage moodiness? Um, the first thing that that I would tell anybody is, is if your first instinct is to dismiss it as normal teenage moodiness, then you've probably messed up. Like you probably missed the point of the conversation. You know what I mean? Um, if I see them sad, even if it's just something that I know is just a transient thing that's just part of their hormones or whatever, they still need to be comforted, you know? Uh, talking about like emotional repression or something like that, if, if especially talking about like a teenage boy or something like that. Um, if they express their sadness to you and you dismiss it and just say, well, this is just normal teenage moodiness, it'll go away, go play football, right? Or go goof off with your friends, just tell jokes and, and cheer yourself up or something like that. You have handed them that prescription that says that your sadness is not okay, right? Get rid of it as soon as you possibly can. And that's what develops into this like adult inability to express. Um, or what would be more stereotypically put like on a female kind of lens, um, teenage girl comes to a coach and says, like, I'm sad or I'm just like tearful all the time. And that gets, just gets chalked up to drama. You know what I mean? Um, it just gets dismissed as like immature drama or something like that. Um, what you've basically taught them is that the things that are important to them shouldn't be important or mm -hmm. that the way that they feel is wrong or bad. Um, and therefore, they need to do something to get rid of that feeling or something like that. So even if it is just normal teenage moodiness, um, we still want to treat it like it's an important conversation anyway, you know. Uh, now, definitely, if they start talking about things like sleeplessness, appetite change, if they use words like emptiness or hopelessness, we definitely want to pay attention to that a little bit more seriously, you know. Um, if it seems like the hopelessness or the emptiness comes without a specific stressor attached to it, it just shows up for no specific reason, um, that can be a really important sign that we're, we're dealing with a more chronic or more clinical level of depression that needs to be treated, you know. Um, and, you know, you're always looking for those kind of, kind of warning signs because um, when teenagers get depressed, they do think about suicide sometimes, you know, or they do think about self-harm. Um, and we don't want to be afraid of those conversations, you know. It, it, it could be that they need to tell somebody about that kind of stuff. So we don't want to be in such a hurry to... To, to dismiss those kinds of things. And I guess the other thing I want to say about that is that as adults, you have the, ex the hindsight experience of, of knowing that these things that they're facing with are actually kind of small, right? But it wasn't very long ago when those things didn't feel small to you. You know what I mean? Um, now, I can listen to a teenager tell me how sad they are about their breakup with their boyfriend or girlfriend, Right. And in my mind, one of my first reactions is, is like, seriously, come on. You guys were together for like two months. Like, this is not that big of a deal, right? Just get over it. You know what I mean? All you need to do is you're just going to go start talking to another one two weeks from now. And as soon as you talk to another, you're going to feel fine about that other one, whatever, you know. And I'll want to minimize it or dismiss it. But if I think back, you know, to being like 15, 16-year-old and that first relationship, um, you lose it, right? Well, I haven't had all this life experience to, to know how to deal with that. So that very first exposure to that rejection, it is the biggest rejection I've ever experienced, you know. And so as an adult looking back on it, it might seem like a small thing. 
But as a 16-year-old or 15-year-old experiencing it, it's a huge thing, you know. Um, I'm constantly telling kids like, hey, like you're, you're a 4.0 student who's upset that you're not a 4.2 student. It's okay. But you know, they've been given this constant message that their whole future depends on getting these grades just right or getting this college to take them. And so they believe that if they get a B on a test, they have just destroyed their whole future. You know, so what something in hindsight to us looks like no big deal, to them it really is a big deal. You know, and so we we still want to give them the 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 platform to take them seriously, even if it just does seem like normal teenage angst kind of things. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's really good because I think a lot of us want to default to just being funny mm-hmm. and telling them to get over it, but that's actually unhealthy. So mm-hmm. that's that's a good takeaway. Mm-hmm. Um, can I ask you a little bit about self-harm real sure. quick? Yeah, I, th- yeah. I think yeah. that was so important that you talked about that. Yeah. Just can you can you help help us understand, A, why, why are they hurting themselves? Mm-hmm. And then as you work with teenagers lately, how are they hurting themselves? Oh, sure, sure. So, so um, as far as like, uh, talk about the how first and talk about the why second, if I can. So um, still the most common and most obvious form of self-harm is um, uh, self-injury through cutting, you know, um, cutting yourself on your legs, cutting yourself on your arms. Um, sometimes this will be in the forms of um, a few very significant cuts. Other times it will be in the form of several like small cuts, lots of scratches, those kinds of things, right? Um, another very common form of self, self-harm self is through like punching yourself, hitting your head against the wall. Like um, we don't normally see that defined as self-harm as often stereotypically, but it is a very common form of self-harm, punching myself in the face, hitting my head against the wall, um, or more commonly like slamming my fists on my thighs until I create bruises on my thighs, those kinds of things. So that's a real common form of, of, of self-harm. And then like broad spectrum, there's lots of other things that you consider self-harm, like depriving yourself of food, um, like those kinds of things. But the, I think the main thing that we're focusing on is like the cutting and the sometimes burning, sometimes like um, like punching yourself, those kinds of things. But as far as why, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good question with a complicated answer that I'm probably going to oversimplify, right? Um, but in my experience and in the research, um, there's a handful of different reasons why people will tend to cut, right? Um, very rarely does that cutting have anything to do with suicide though, right? Um, most of the time, a person is cutting to relieve pain, which sounds counterintuitive, right? Um, uh, because it's inflicting pain, obviously. They don't necessarily cut as a desire to want to die. That's which... I guess there's a, a few examples where sometimes that could be the case, but very rarely is that ever the case. So a couple things that you might experience. Um, uh, one might be, uh, we talk about that numbness, uh, that emptiness, or that void that comes with feeling depressed, right? Um, so a person who's had uh, a long period of feeling empty or feeling nothing will want to feel something, right? Um, so perhaps the only way they can feel something is to inflict it in a physical way, which will cause an adrenaline reaction, which is an emotion, right? And so if I've got a long period of time of feeling nothing, cutting can actually feel like a relief because it reminds me that I'm alive and I'm still human and I still have feelings, right? Um, Probably the most common way, uh, reason why a person cuts themselves is to relieve pressure, right? Um, I have too many emotions. I have too much going on inside my head. I feel like I'm swirling. I feel like I'm about to explode as, as a balloon has just kind of like reached its maximum capacity. I feel like it's about to pop, right? Um, and what most people who do non-suicidal self-injuring or, or cutting as we're referring to it, um, 
is they feel like if I cut, um, I will experience a release of pressure, right? Which is actually the emotional experience that they have. And um, the, the, the bad news is, is that it actually works, right? Um, so you f- experience this physical pain, your brain stops focusing on the emotional thing and focuses on the physical thing and it can kind of downregulate, you know? Um, and now I feel the pain, I feel the sense of relief. Um, and for a short period of time, they have this wound now, but they kind of feel better for a little bit. And, and there's, that's the reason why they go back to it is because in the short term, it works. Obviously, it's very maladaptive and we want to find better coping skills than that. Um, but, but they do it because it gives that relief of pressure. And then the third reason, which is kind of, um, I want to say this in the correct way, right? Uh, it actually is to get attention, right? Now, I, I don't like calling it that because oftentimes an adult will hear that a teenager is self-injuring to get attention, right? And their immediate reaction to that is then, well, we need to ignore it or then it's not important or then it doesn't matter. They're just, they're just acting out to try to get attention or something like that. But if a kid needs attention so bad uh, that they're willing to injure themselves to try to get you to pay attention, then we should pay attention, right? That's, that's a very clear message that they're trying to send, right? Um, or another way that you can try to put that, like, I need to show you how serious this is, right? Like, I've tried to use my words, I've tried to use my behaviors to communicate to you how bad I actually feel, right? And you're not getting it. Like, you're clearly not getting the in my room crying thing. You know, you're clearly not getting the emotional outburst kind of thing. What do I have to do for you to believe that I'm really hurting? How about this? Like, you'll believe this, right? And that actually also works because you'll very often find um, in a family system that has dismissed or ignored chronic depression, once that kid crosses into self-injurious behavior, now they're taken serious. You know, now they get therapy. Now their parents actually check in on them or figure out what's going on, which, which, is that attention-seeking? Yes. Um, but that doesn't mean we dismiss it. That means that there's, there's something we need to be paying attention to. Right? Um, uh, so so I, I hope I didn't, like, like cutting is something that uh, a non-professional can see and get really startled by, right? I think that's actually part of the, the point of it, of, is how startling it is, right? Um, but if you come across a kid who has some kind of self-injurious behavior, the, the first thing to do, um, you want to first check and see, like, is this kid like bleeding out? Do we need to give them immediate medical attention, right? Um, uh, but then a, like a helpful question that you can kind of ask is like, what does that do for you, you know? Um, uh, what's the need that that meets inside of you, you know? Um, and get them to see if you can get them to, to express that. And th- that is definitely a case if you've got a kid who has some sort of self-harming behavior. Um, uh, regardless of your opinion of that kid or what you think is causing that, that should never be just dismissed as typical teenage moodiness. That should always be somebody who's followed up with a student pastor or referred for, for counseling um, or some sort of next step be taken because um, even if they were just copying their friends, right, it's still an important thing that should never be just, just skipped over. Yeah. Man, yeah, heavy stuff. Um, shifting gears a little bit, uh, kind of going back to the beginning where you talked about grief. Mm-hmm. Yeah how our students are going to experience various levels of grief over yeah. the course of our time with them. How can we as coaches kind of come alongside them, help them process their grief in a healthy, constructive way? Yeah, so so grief, um, like I said earlier, grief can take all kinds of different forms and it can take all kinds of different um, 
it can be about any kind of s- specific subject, whether we're talking about someone that they've lost, a family member or a relationship, um, some sort of expectation that they lost. I know that that last year there were a lot of people who kind of had to grieve like graduations and proms and things that we normally wouldn't think would be worthy of grief, right? Um, but what that was actually was, was this whole idea of what my life is supposed to look like at this time, all these hopes and dreams about how fun it's going to be and how, 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 how much, how, how memorable it's going to be and all that just to be taken away without anything to replace it with. Or, you know, we try to come up with like Zoom proms and all that kind of stuff, but <laughs> it's just not the same, you know? Um, and so, so anything that's a loss can be grieved, right? Um, and, and the important thing that I want to communicate to that is that um, grief should not be fixed. Uh, grief needs to be processed. Or grief needs to be expressed, right? Um, so, so two things that I'm going to give advice to any adult, whether you're talking to another adult or you're talking to a, to a teen, right? Um, one is, is there's this idea uh, called sitting shiva, um, which is an ancient kind of Hebrew like principle. Whenever a person would die, right, um, the widow or, or the family member, a, a friend or a neighbor would come over and just sit shiva with them, right. And what that basically means is that they're just going to be physically in their presence, right. They don't expect them to talk. They don't expect them to do anything about it. I'm just going to be there by their side, and then wait for them to want to process something or want to respond to something. Um, and, and so this whole idea, and obviously the sitting shiva is a bit more complicated than that, but, but what I think is beautiful about that is that I'm not doing anything other than being physically present, right? Um, I'm just going to be here and available, right? So that when you're ready to process something or when you're ready to respond to something, you don't have to go looking for someone, you know what I mean? Uh, so, so what that would look like in a modern context um, that might be literally just keeping a person company after they've just experienced a big loss. Um, you don't have to always be talking about the loss necessarily, right? Um, uh, just being there, that's, that's, that's fine, right? And especially being there in a way that puts no expectation on them to entertain or to, 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 to engage. I'm just, I'm just sitting next to you, right? Um, so that's one thing that I think that, that as a culture we're not super good at, you know, we're not comfortable with silence. We're not comfortable with emotion, you know. Um, but if I just need to sit next to you and I know that you're going through something in your head, um, I'm just going to let it be there and I'm not going to do anything about it just yet, right? But when that person is ready to talk, when they do want to open up to you, um, you don't be afraid of that conversation, right? Uh, a lot of people will start to feel like they are unequipped to handle a grief conversation. You know, this needs a parent, this needs a professional, this needs a pastor. No, it doesn't, right? It just needs another human being, right? That, that's what it needs is another person, right? Um, and so don't be afraid of that conversation. Um, uh, check your own discomfort with emotions, with tearfulness, with, with weeping. Um, uh, and, and when it comes to helping a person heal from grief, right? You don't want to try to do things to cheer them up. Right. That's not the point. Right. That can be a temporary band-aid that helps get them through some rough moments. Um, but just cheering them up or just trying to get them over it, uh, that doesn't actually help the grief go away. Right. If if I do something to distract me from it, then the grief stays stored inside my body, you know, and then it comes out later 
in very, very painful ways, very, very confusing kinds of ways. Um, um, so you get them to tell stories about, um, you know, especially if we're talking about somebody that you've lost, you know, um, get them to talk about the memories, you know, what was that person like? What do you remember about spending time with, with them? Um, what were you hoping for? What were you looking forward to? You know, like those kinds of questions, get them to talk about whatever it was that they're, they're thinking about, right? Get them to talk about their feelings, you know, um, talk about sadness, talk about like, even if it's repetitive, sometimes it can be over and over again, just saying the same things. That's okay, right? Um, when it comes to reprocessing something, as humans, we need to verbally express it. Like, and sometimes we need to verbally express it over and over and over again. And so it's like, hey, dude, you've told me this story 15 times. I don't care. Maybe they need 17 <laughs> times, right? And if you could just hang in there for those extra two more times when they tell the same story, that's what their brain needs to feel satisfied and then not need to, not need to go over it again, you know? Um, so get them talking. Um, uh, ask them some questions that get them to talk, right? Um, be comfortable with whatever emotions and whatever pace they take it. You know, um, I do want to kind of go on a, on a, on a side tangent, um, specifically about men and boys and how we experience and express both depression and grief or, or sadness in any form. Right. Um, because notoriously as a culture, um, we're terrible at, at expressing any kind of vulnerable or what feels like weak emotions or something like that. And so most likely if you're working with an adolescent boy and you might need to, if you're a man listening to this, you might need to check this in yourself too, <laughs> uh, because I know that this is a thing that I struggle with personally is um, we find ways to cope with our depression um, through action, right? Um, and so what's very often going to come out is a very driven competitive kind of spirit, right? Um, a, a humorous acting up kind of spirit, right? Or an angry acting out kind of spirit, right? Um, and any one of those kinds of tones, they could be exactly what they are on the surface, but there's a very good chance that that's a person who's experiencing some kind of grief or some kind of depression uh, that, that has not been expressed in an appropriate way. So it's being covered up with by just busyness, 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 or a need to achieve, need to succeed, uh, because that temporary feeling of accomplishment takes away from the sadness, or I feel like I'm going to chase this away by working hard, right? Um, or the very stereotypical kind of thing of just acting out in an angry way. Um, girls can do that too, but guys do that a lot, you know? So you might get a kid who the parents want you to talk to them about their attitude or about their anger or something like that. And the first thing I'm thinking of about an angry kid, right, is what's the threat that they feel like they need to protect themselves from, right? Because that's what anger is. Anger is a, is a, a threat mitigation kind of emotion, right? Um, so if I get an angry kid, either they're scared of something, right, um, or they're wounded in some way and they need to protect themselves. And usually it's that they're wounded in some way and they need to protect themselves. So what's... Um, if I can get that teenage boy to go past the level expressing their anger, which maybe I need to let them do that part first, right? To the, the what hurt me kind of thing. What did I lose? What am I missing here, right? Um, then I can help break that cycle of this, um, this silent kind of depression, you know? Um, yeah. And, and so, so I'm not sure if that answers the, the original question, but uh, yeah. it's just one of those topics that I feel that like, uh, doesn't get voiced enough. Men and boys get depressed a lot, right? Uh, but it 
doesn't always look like laying in bed crying, you know. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's not, it doesn't need to be processed. It doesn't need to be, it still needs to be dealt with. Yeah. That, that is good. So I should be taking notes over here, deal with my own life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for just diving into a, a tough subject. Mm-hmm. We, we appreciate it. And we know that uh, this is real. Mm-hmm. This is real. And I, it's personal to me and Eric too. Mm-hmm. And there's things that we're learning right now too. So thanks for helping us get ready for this and, and really care for our students really well. Mm-hmm. And Eric, do you want to add anything else before we wrap up? I, I, I think just don't, uh, as you said a couple different times, like don't be afraid as a coach of these conversations. Uh, anytime you feel like you get in over your head, you've got student pastors at the ready, happy to, to come alongside and support that. Um, and I think you spoke, I think at the beginning of this about that there's a lot of the stigma of therapy and in ways that we treat mental health. Uh, a lot of that is breaking down. There's still some of it, but, mm-hmm. uh, but I think that's, a, that's a good thing. And it, I think helps make students more open as you talk with them and think, Hey, have you ever, have you ever seen anyone about this? Mm-hmm. Um, I, that's not the offensive question. It was a decade or two ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully we'll just get students some help that they need. That's right. That's right. Cool. Well, we're going to wrap up. Thanks for, for uh, checking out the podcast today, bonus episode. And uh, we'll have a, another podcast for you again. We're going to try to anticipate some things that are coming uh, our way as camp quickly approaches. So uh, check us out next month. And in the meantime, uh, keep keep growing as a leader. Uh, We know when the coach gets better, the whole student ministry gets better. Mm